2: the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities.
3: Hey freaks, well, uh, here's the thing, Um, Kat's not in the studio, she's still upstairs, and uh, so I'm going to call her, hang on here, I'll FaceTime her. hi um you. we're i love you too we're supposed to be recording you said you'd you'd be right down and and you're not down. Mm. yeah
1: yeah um unfortunately something's happened and uh, okay now,
3: okay i see now you have the dogs in your lap and you can't move
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes i would very much like to join you please don't think i wouldn't oh. uh however right there Oh, this one, the small one, mm-hmm. the small one is doing that weird, like, almost snore, but not quite. It's just like that. yeah. And I can't.
3: That that does have a soothing property to it. It, it It's almost like a kitten purring. I understand that, but we can't made,
1: expect me to stop it. We have
3: we have uh, we have an obligation to the freak family. Can you just bring them down? And
1: like, I don't know how you would expect me to do that, sir. Sir, I feel like you're being unreasonable. Did you did you not see? No. Oh. Yeah,
3: I see them. They um, they're adorable. So, should I do the show by myself or
1: <laughs> beat down?
3: <laughs> Let's see how long it takes her to uh, to gather the dogs and join us. I can hear you stomping down the stairs. There you are. Hello. I'm
1: so mad at you. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Let
1: I think me it... get my phone plugged in. All
3: right. Are you eating M and M's?
1: Not talking to you. Yeah, you know, I grab some MMs because I'm very hungry. I haven't been able to move for hours.
3: <laughs> Finish up because uh, you go first. <laughs> Pressure's on.
1: Hello, thank you for joining us.
2: <laughs>
1: the first written records. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Just making sure. Okay. Sure. So I'm just making sure you were here for this, Mm -hmm. right? I I am. It's time to do the work stuff, sweetheart. (laughs) God,
3: I'm all about it.
1: Okay. So the first written records of the ancient Olympics say that they were held in 776 BCE. The Olympic Games were not just a sporting event; they were a social event, a cultural highlight of the ancient Greek calendar for almost 12 centuries. And according to Paul Christensen, professor of the ancient greek history at dartmouth college it's hard for us to exaggerate how important the olympics were for the greeks the ancient olympics were held every four years between august 6 and september 19 during a religious festival honoring zeus legend has it that uh, hercules the son of zeus actually founded the games
3: Oh. This is yeah. probably not. Probably not. Probably
1: not what yeah. happened, though. Did
3: they do that shooting and skiing event back then?
1: Oh, yeah. That was the first one. The first was one. Was skiing. Yeah,
3: the skiing in Greece. Yeah. They would ski and then, you know, shoot.
1: Yeah. Shoot, shoot at the clay pigeons. Yeah.
3: What's that called?
1: Skiing and shooting? Yeah. I think that's scoot s- scooting? Scru-
3: scru- uh, the biathlon. Skeet ski, in other words.
1: Skeet, skeet, skeet.
3: Skeet, skeet,
1: skeet. Yeah. To the windows. To the walls. All right. Um, <laughs> there's really not much evidence for that or for the Olympics being held before 776 BCE. In the early centuries of Olympic competition, all of the contests took place on one day. Uh, later, the games were spread over four days and a fifth was devoted to the closing ceremony. Now, it was kind of okay that the contests were held on just one day because it started off with one contest. It was a one Event games Was it wrestling? No. It wasn't? No, it was not. Because that's
3: the very first thing I would think of.
1: No. The first Olympic champion listed in the records was Corobus of Ellis. He was a cook. He took part in the race, which was known as the Stade, and it was about 192 meters long. And the word Stade also came to refer to the track that the race was held on, oh, okay. and it became... Stadium.
3: Oh, that's amazing. A
1: stadium. I love that. Now, I love w- it. When
3: you said the first uh, champion was a cook, mm-hmm. I thought that maybe the first event was like some sort of a chopped thing.
1: That would be amazing. You know, like a cooking
3: competition, <gasps>
1: ancient Greek chopped.
3: Yeah, what's
1: in your basket? It's hot Cheetos, motherfucker. <laughs> Good luck.
3: Yeah, most people don't realize that hot Cheetos were invented in ancient Greece.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's like olive oil and mm-hmm.
3: hot Cheetos. No, ancient Greece, not olive oil. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, yeah I got see, because
1: oh man, mm. we're gonna have to call Pete. Pete's our lawyer.
3: Yeah, so <laughs> okay, she's implying she's going to divorce me <laughs> for dad jokes. Okay, go ahead.
1: Okay, again, Christensen from uh, Dartmouth College said that the Persians had invaded Greece in the summer of 480 BCE, and a lot of the Greek city-states had agreed that they would put together an allied army, but they had a very hard time getting one together because people really wanted to go to the olympics (laughs) and so they actually had to delay putting the army together uh to defend their country against the persians because olympics yeah yeah
3: at least they had their priorities set
1: so the opening ceremony it included a an oath that they would take uh they would swear on a bloody slice of boar flesh (laughs) in front of the statue of zeus I do. I don't I don't know what... That's sacred. I guess. Right there. It's... Uh, yeah. uh, do
3: you swear on this bloody slab of boar flesh in front of Zeus and all mankind? Mm-hmm.
1: What, what would, would the sw- modern day version of that be?
3: I don't know, but it would involve hot Cheetos.
1: Do you Do you swear upon this charcuterie board? <laughs> Why can't I say that Char- word?
3: Charcuterie? Charcuterie.
1: Charcuterie.
3: Charcuterie. That's a whole different thing.
1: (laughs) Do you swear upon these sliced salamis? Um,
3: (laughs) Do you you swear on this Hickory Farms assortment that...
1: I got at the kiosk at the mall.
3: Mm -hmm. That you will try real hard during this game.
1: (laughs) I have a quick question about Hickory Farms kiosks. Mm -hmm. Now, in Bangor, Maine... Mm -hmm. Uh, we had a mall. I, I mean, we still have a mall. Well, the it's buildings just there. You. And, yeah. Mm. When I was a, a small person, like mm-hmm. a small baby person, mm-hmm. who who spent time at the mall, we had a Hickory Farms kiosk, but only right. during the month of December. Yeah,
3: I think most people. It was like that wherever I lived.
1: That was my question: yeah. was Was the Hickory Farms kiosk a year round thing in larger markets, or was it just because we were in Maine that we only got the December Hickory Farms?
3: Like like the Halloween spirit store, like the Halloween yeah. spirit store. Um, in all of the cities I ever lived in, mm-hmm. they were all seasonal kiosks. Okay, which doesn't mean that there weren't year-round I displays mean, you somewhere. You lived but in
1: some serious places, though. I you, some pretty
3: pretty big cities. You yeah. lived in
1: like Tampa and yeah,
3: Phoenix and L.A.
1: Um, I one time got my mom a, uh, a package from the Hickory Farms store.
3: Summer sausage with a hot mustard. It
1: was it was something like that, mm-hmm. and I got the. Least enthusiastic response from that that you could possibly imagine, and rightfully so. <laughs> what was I thinking? Here, Mom. <laughs> here's, anyway,
3: here's something I got from a seasonal meat display.
1: <laughs> it just seemed special. I, I don't know. I've never been very good at gift giving. Now, The athletes also took a further oath that for 10 successive months, they had strictly followed the regulations for training. The oath was also taken by those who examined the the people entering the races that they would decide fairly without taking bribes and that they would keep secret what they learned about those who would be taking part in the events. So in 724 BCE, there was a two-length race, roughly similar to the 400-meter included. And then four years later, they added a long-distance race. And then wrestling and the pentathlon were introduced in 708 BCE. Wrestling was my first thought, too. I assumed that it would be one of the first, if not the first, event added. But it wasn't until much later. Well, much. You know, much is relative. Anyway. So the rules. As I said, they were pretty serious about these rules. And of course, number one rule, you compete naked, dude.
3: (laughs) See, this is something else I wish they would bring back. (laughs) All Olympians have to perform in the noodle. Perform, huh? (laughs) And that would make that biathlon ski and shooting event a lot more challenging.
1: (laughs) Well, what's interesting is there are a lot of theories as to why the competitors had to be naked. One of which is that, obviously, it would take more self-control to be in public in the nude and not be aroused. Sure, so, but sure. But I think probably their minds would have been on other things.
3: Also, it makes it harder to steal bloody slabs of boar meat.
1: That's true. Mm. Where are you gonna hide them?
3: You know, you can't. You can't get an entire rotisserie chicken in your pants.
1: That's incorrect, and you know it. I just showed you a TikTok about that yesterday. <laughs> That's
3: why I brought that up.
1: Anyway. Corporal punishment awaited those guilty of a false start on the track. What? If you tried to get a head start, if you like went before the... Yeah. Pow,
3: wait,
1: what would it have been? A.
3: No, they saved that for the biathlon event. <laughs> they, they probably shot an arrow in the air. I don't know how they would start. How would you start an ancient Greek race...
1: I didn't think about before that Before
3: firearms.
1: Until just now, so mm. I didn't have time to look it up.
3: Go! Like yeah, that. It's probably... probably so if they, if they did jump across the line, false start,
1: mm-hmm. corporal
3: punishment, meaning they got beaten and flogged and... Yeah, it was oh, serious. wow.
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when you were taking part in the boxing or the, the martial artsy event, yeah. um, you were urged to avoid attacking on display male genitals. It wasn't like, okay, none of this, but it was like, please don't do this. And I don't think that there were um, a lot of points or time limits or weight classifications involved in the boxing. So really, almost everything was on the table, except you could not bite and you could not gouge.
3: But you could punch him in the nuts.
1: I mean, you were urged not to.
3: Okay. But, you know, everybody was secretly hoping they would, much like people hope for a car crash during a NASCAR event. (laughs) I heard I heard a comedian say one time that uh, he, he would never go to a NASCAR event because it was too expensive. He was just going to stay home and light a box of Tide on fire.
1: <laughs> I don't know what that means. Okay. <laughs> I feel like that should be funny to me, but I don't know how and why. Okay. Because of
3: all the big corporate logos on the oh, cars. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I get it. Right. I get it. Mm-hmm. I'm hip. I know you are. I know. About, you're
3: you're not just hip. I, you're NASCAR hip.
1: I know about the meow, meow, mm-hmm. meow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, when you're involved in this event, this nude male uh, rumble fest, if in the midst of this heated exchange of power. It, you could not be separated, or a, a winner could not be chosen. One or both of the boxers could opt for the climax.
3: Now, again, <laughs> they were in the nude and punching each other in the nuts.
1: Well, they were urged, urged not, not to. to. Yeah, uh, that was a system whereby one fighter was granted a free hit, and then vice versa. Hmm. But they would like do a toss, a coin toss, to see who got to go first. Really, and then they would just one at a time, punch each other (laughs) until until they'd stop.
3: Until one of them fell down and didn't get up. Yeah. That is the most basic competition ever.
1: (laughs) The way that they would alert the referees, I don't think they were called referees, you know uh, that they were done was to raise up a index finger.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: But oftentimes they would be embroiled in such an altercation that they were unable to do so and then would be killed.
2: Wow. So
1: that wow. happened a lot.
3: That's crazy.
1: Now I started reading about the ancient Olympics because I learned that women were not allowed at the games. and I thought, oh yeah, well, okay, I can see that that they wouldn't have like female Olympic games. Mm-hmm. that I mean, it's bullshit, but I I get that that makes sense in history. but it's not just that they weren't allowed to play. They weren't allowed to go.
3: Well, because all the guys were nude.
1: Yes. That, that is correct. That's the reason. That is why. Yeah. If you were a married lady, uh, you were banned from the games. And if you were caught at the games, <laughs> you would be hurled to your death from a cliff.
3: Which ultimately became its own competition.
1: Couldn't you just not have an arena full of dicks?
3: Wife hurling.
1: We have a games here that involves wife carrying.
3: That's right. It's world famous.
1: And uh, it's a treat. It really is, folks. It's,
3: it's right after the frying pan toss. And that pig, is actually a thing. Here. And in the pig scramble.
1: We don't support the pig scramble. I've written so many letters to the agricultural board, and they just, they're like, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, okay, well, mm-hmm. that's fine. Just yeah. keep supporting cruelty. Anyway, uh, what was I saying? Yes, arena full of dicks. There was a loophole to this rule, and it was that chariot owners... Not riders were declared Olympic champions, and anyone could own a chariot. Oh. So, yeah. So, uh, Kineska, daughter of a Spartan king, took advantage of this, and she claimed victory wreaths in 396 BCE and 392 BCE. She was
3: kind of like the Danica Patrick of her day, NASCAR.
1: Oh, yeah. She sport, tied sport. Anyway, the second century CE traveler, Pausanias wrote that women were banned from the Olympics during the actual games under penalty of death. But he also remarked that the law and penalty were not really enforced. So I think hmm. probably some ladies would sneak in from time to time. But there are those that insist that he misspoke. But it seems like a weird thing to say that the law was enforced because if you didn't say anything, that would lead you to believe that the law was enforced. So, why would you specifically write to say the law? was enforced.
3: I'm confused.
1: Okay. The Olympic Games were finally abolished around the year 400 CE by the Roman Emperor Thesodius or his son meh, unclear because of the festival's pagan associations <laughs> and that was it. Like generations and generations of history and tradition and
3: pageantry.
1: Yep. No we don't. Yeah. It's too pagany. y We're not going to do it. And then it was brought back and, and it, was, uh, it was a good time later on totally different though less nudes
2: and now that thing in the middle back in the
3: 80s a company in new york introduced pencils to schools that read quote too cool to do drugs written on the side they had to be recalled when the company realized that when the pencils were sharpened
2: down to a certain point the message read do drugs you know what the curator has in common with a serial killer? Damned right you don't. This is The Box of
3: Oddities. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca.
1: And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them.
3: I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our Aura Frame, the more I love it. I have kids. at checkout and you will save. Thanks Aura Frames for bringing my family a little bit closer.
0: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallets Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with Nerd Wallets team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing and more. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth.
1: We got this message from Leona on Facebook. Hi, Cat and Jethro. I picked up Boo a couple of weeks ago, and I've been listening nonstop. Let me tell you, obsessed. I've been quickly telling all of my friends about the podcast because it's so gosh darn good. Thank you so much, wow. by the way, for telling your friends. That's how it's done. <laughs> because we can't, we can't make other people listen. We don't have, have the time to, to call to do that.
3: all of your friends. <laughs> So thank you.
1: Yes. Anytime that you tell your friends to listen and they listen, you should tell us because then we'll go, thank you.
3: Yes. And it's one less person we have to call.
1: Right? Oh, the list is so long of people who still don't listen. Anyway. Um. I'm listening to episode 299, where Kat is listing odd laws from different states and was instantly thrown back to my childhood, where I was gifted a book called You Can't Keep a Donkey in Your Bathtub. (laughs) I basically screamed. I was so excited when Kat said that law from Georgia. The book is all about obscure laws from all over the states, and it just brought me so much joy to be reminded of it. Hoping You Both Are Well, Your Newest addition to the Freak Fam. P.S. I Still Have the Book Because I Think Everyone Needs to Know About These Fascinating Laws and Not Because I'm a Book Hoarder.
3: (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're you're a Book Hoarder. So
1: I wrote back, thanks for joining us, Leona. Book Book hoarder. Hoarder. And now for something different.
3: You remember a number of episodes ago, I talked about the bodies that were left on Mount Everest, hikers that, uh, that perished and they couldn't get them off the mountain.
1: Oh yeah, green boots.
3: Green boots is one of the more notable ones. And along with that story, I talked about uh, several expeditions to Everest that met with adverse conditions, but were, un- were able to survive the descent and escape with their lives. But during many of those surviving expeditions... They talked about an experience they had that's referred to as the third man phenomenon.
1: Oh, yeah. So there was a river and then the people we needed help across the river and someone helped them, but it wasn't a person.
3: Yeah, th- that was one of them. Okay, yes, yeah. Yes.
1: The third man. This is, by the way, how I remember all things. Is kind of like, yeah, there was something about something and then there was a... <laughs> There was a thing, right? And then that other thing happened. That's how all things are retained in my brain.
3: Yeah. The third man phenomenon goes like this. During a stressful, life-threatening situation, oftentimes the survivors report that there was an invisible person alongside them during their fight for survival, instructing, guiding, and encouraging them.
1: An invisible person?
3: Yes. They sense the presence, but they cannot see anybody. There have been situations where people have reported seeing like a shadowy figure. Okay. But not a solid person.
1: Oh, see, I thought it was a person who just, like, (sighs) fluff.
3: No, there was no fluffing. Okay. The first example of this phenomenon happened during the Trans-Antarctic Expedition of uh, 1914 through 1917, and considered by many to be the last major expedition of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. It was led by Sir Ernest Shackleton... The Shackleton expedition. Hey,
1: we've talked about that.
3: It was uh, his attempt to make the very first land crossing of the Antarctic continent. He said it was the last crossing the Antarctic continent was the, the last one great objective of Antarctic exploration. Shackleton's expedition failed to accomplish this. What they're remembered and recognized for was the epic feat of endurance that they withstood in order to survive. Now, Shackleton's ship was called the Endurance, and it would carry most of his party during the expedition.
1: Wait, the, the party was known for the Endurance, and also their ship was called the Endurance? Yes. Well, that is, that is an example of a name leading to a behavior if I've ever heard one. It's like when a brad acts like a brad.
3: <laughs> um <laughs> Sure.
1: I'm just kidding. If your name's Brad, I'm sure you're lovely.
3: On August 3rd, 1914, the Endurance was directed by Winston Churchill to head out to proceed even though the First World War had just broken out. Shackleton, for his part, delayed his journey until September 27th, and he met up with a ship in Buenos Aires. The Endurance left on the 5th of December, heading for Vashel Bay. They very quickly met with ice, and this slowed the progress of the ship down considerably. Conditions continued to worsen, and on the 19th of January in 1915, Shackleton's crew in the Endurance became frozen in the ice flow.
1: Oh my gosh, is that where Nicolas Cage comes in?
3: No, that was the Charlotte. Now, Shackleton was hoping that the ship would break free and would work its way back toward the bay, but unfortunately, once the ice began to clear, the moving and the shifting of the ice flow was basically crushed the ship. It
1: broke up the ship. It
3: broke the ship into pieces, the Endurance. On October 24th, the water began to seep in and then pour in. And after a few days, Shackleton ordered the ship abandoned. At this point, they moved their equipment and the entire crew to a makeshift camp on an ice floe. Oh. They weren't even on land. They were on a floating piece of ice. Oh, no. On November 21st of that year... The ship finally sank beneath the surface. They sat there in their camp on their floating camp, and they watched the ship go down.:
1: That's got to be depressing.
3: Shackleton and his party camped on this large, flat ice floe for almost two months. Wow. The ice floe slowly drifted toward Polet Island, about 250 miles away. Now, this was important because they knew that supplies had been stashed on this island. And they attempted to march across the ice floe several times, but failed. So at this point, Shackleton decided to set up a more permanent camp on a different ice floe. Now, his strategy was to just hope the ice floe would drift his camp toward a safe landing. This was his strategy. We're not going to stay on this ice floe. We're going to get on that one. And that one's going to take us someplace where we can that be safe. That
1: faster. It's
3: the express ice flow. By the 17th of March, they actually were within 60 miles of the island where the supplies were. Mm. Unfortunately, the ice between them and the and the island was impassable, or they just couldn't reach it because there were stretches of open water. That would have been terrifying to me. On the 9th of April, to make matters worse, the ice flow that they were on began to break
1: up. No, this makes me... <sighs> claustrophobic how is that the right feeling no it's something else but it's similar to claustrophobia you
3: feel you're feeling trapped and confined even though you're in a wide open space you can't go anywhere Uh, i don't don't know what the term for that would be so, Shackleton ordered the lifeboats into the water in the attempt to head toward the nearest body of land. They spent five horrifying days at sea. The weather was unbearable. Finally, finally, they landed their three lifeboats on Elephant Island. They had made it about 350 miles from where the Endurance had sunk. And this was the first time that these guys stood on solid land in a year and a half. Oh. Yeah. Between being on a on a ship and an ice floe. Mm. No land.
1: I have questions. Did they eat each other at any point so far?
3: No, they, there was no cannibalism at this point.
1: Also, why why is it called Elephant Island? <laughs> That's a good
3: question. I don't know. Thank you. I'm sure there were no elephants there. All right? I don't think there was anything there, really, except <laughs> ice. According to an article in The Guardian, Elephant Island was a very hostile environment And it wasn't near any shipping routes. So this meant that the rescue, by chance, just staying there and hoping that somebody was going to come by and discover them was, was pretty much nil. So at this point, Shackleton decided to take just one boat and risk a journey of 720 nautical miles to a distant South Georgia whaling station, which was the closest one that they knew of. And he knew that help would be available there. So he chose the strongest boat out of the three that he had. It was about 20 feet long. Mm-hmm. They made improvements on it as best they could. They raised the sides a little bit. They, they built a makeshift deck of wood and canvas, and they sealed it as best they could with paint and seal blood.
1: Okay. Sounds
3: terrible. Shackleton then refused to pack supplies for more than just four weeks because he knew if they did not reach the island in four weeks that there was no hope for mm. them. On May 24th, 1916, they launched. For 15 days, they sailed through waters, through the waters of uh, the Southern Ocean, extremely stormy seas, always threatened by capsizing. However, on May 8th, they could see the cliffs of South Georgia on the horizon. Oh my God. But as they grew closer to the island, hurricane force winds came up and kept them from landing. They were forced to ride the storm out just offshore. The danger of being bashed against the rocks was very great. But finally, the next day, they were able to land on the island. Now, at this point, they, they discovered that they had landed on the southern end of the island. And the whaling camp was on the entire opposite side of the island. Now, they could get back in their ship and sail around the island, but the weather was just so unpredictable and it was still storming, and so they decided that it would be easier—well, not easier, but more efficient, maybe—to attempt a land crossing. Nobody had, had previously attempted this crossing before. And all they took with them were the boots that they had on. They pushed some screws through them so they would get better traction. And uh, 50 feet of rope. That was it. That That was all they took with them. Three of them set out to climb this dangerous mountainous terrain. It took them 36 hours. But then they finally reached the whaling station. The station was called Stromness. They did that on May the 20th. Once they reached that side of the island, they managed to send another ship around to rescue the other two guys they left on the other side of the island and then sent another ship to rescue the entire crew of the ill-fated Imperial Transit Antarctic Expedition.
1: Down down on the ice floe?
3: Down on Elephant Island, yes. Okay. And it wasn't until several weeks after they were rescued that all three men began talking about this uncanny experience that they had.
1: Oh my God, the third man thing. Yeah. I totally forgot that that was the point of this story. I just got really into the Shackleton expedition.
3: <laughs> During this over the mountain trip through storms, 36 hours, these three guys, they all independently of each other said they had a feeling often that they were that there were four of them there and not 3 on the journey. They all said that this fourth companion accompanied them. He he or she, I guess, had a silent presence but the presence of a real person. They sensed that someone was walking with them by their side from their point of departure over the mountain until they reached the whaling station, but then no further. Wow. Shackleton was so deeply moved and affected by this experience, he didn't want to talk about it much. He would later say very little about it other than it was something, quote, which can never be spoken of. These types of encounters with invisible, mysterious guardians are not uncommon in extreme conditions and survival situations. It's been described as a guide or a guardian angel or some sort of a Christ-like figure. Now We've referred to it as the third man experience. And in Shackleton's case, it was a fourth man, and that was the first recorded example of this happening. The third man reference comes from a line in T.S. Eliot's poem, The Wasteland. Now, he wrote this poem. It was based on the Shackleton uh, experience. Quote, Who is the third man who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you. It was based on Shackleton's experience, but T.S. Eliot wasn't remembering all the details precisely. Mm. Um, It should have been the fourth man, but because of his poem, it's called The Third Man Phenomenon.
1: Sure. I also consider that maybe it would have been more awkward to write about a group of people rather than just a you and I kind of thing. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's more, more poetic. It's more way.
3: poetic and romantic. You're yeah. right. Author John Geiger wrote a book called The Third Man Factor, and it talks about a wide range of third man stories some from mountaineers who survived, uh, some from people who survived terrorist attacks, some from sailors. Every one of them had a similar experience in the sense that they felt a very strong presence, sometimes even heard a voice, or as I mentioned earlier, a shadow like image, but always. Without clear form, these experiences most often happen during extreme physical conditions, social isolation, or a threat to life. Oftentimes, survivors say that it uh, it has it was like um, a spiritual or, or guarding, guiding purpose that was that was going along with them. Hmm. It's pretty easy to think that maybe. This is some sort of a defense mechanism that the brain has under certain conditions of extreme duress.
1: Right, like a you are not alone kind of thing. Right.
3: Oh, man. But it does also happen in less dramatic experiences. For example, after the death of a loved one, often people report sensing their presence. Mm feeling that they're in the house somewhere with them, maybe even sitting in their favorite chair. There have been instances where people with brain injuries have reported feeling a presence. Usually it's damage to one particular area of the brain, and electrical stimulation in this area has been known to induce the feeling of a nearby presence. They say, among other things, this particular part of the brain appears to play an important role in maintaining an internal representation of our body image. So one theory is that the feelings of a presence occur when our representation of our own body is somehow duplicated or projected outside of us. This is called an autoscopic experience.
1: Do you think it's because your your brain is under duress and so it's almost like creating an alternate version so that you're not dealing with the the feelings that you're feeling. Like, geez, this frostbite sucks. I'd rather be over there. (laughs) Yeah,
3: maybe. (laughs) On one hand, oftentimes the person having this experience feels like they have some kind of an important bond with the figure. Mm. On the other hand, some have feelings that the presence is alien or often malevolent toward them. This type of experience happens more frequently in cases of sleep paralysis. Mm. For example, it's been thought that cases of sleep paralysis often involve an old evolutionary impulse to detect threat in our environment while we sleep. Mm. This coupled with muscle paralysis can lead to an intense fear of a presence in the room. Regardless, this area is fascinating requires a lot more investigation understanding about how and why we feel these presences could potentially tell us many things about ourselves including understanding how we react under intense or mental physical stress or how we deal with danger and how we recognize the shape and position of our own bodies but the big thing for me is shedding light on other unusual experiences that are hard to understand or explain is it a spiritual experience? Is it uh, caused by some sort of physiological condition, or is it caused by a physiological condition that's caused by a spiritual influence? These are questions I want answers to, and I want them right now.
1: Well, I mean, I'm here to to help you with that. It, your you, your you brain's re- going crazy. Are you
3: are you real? <laughs> Am I just projecting you?
1: Are you under duress?
3: Mm, I don't think so, but maybe I'm so under duress, I don't know I'm under duress.
1: Interesting theory.
3: I have to question reality in general now. That's really (laughs) what it's come down to. Anyway, the third man phenomenon, fascinating stuff.
1: Now I have to say, you know how uh, very often something will come up in conversation that is a song lyric, and it's hard for me to not reference that song or start singing that song and it's okay so three instances during this last 20 minutes of my life Mm -hmm. i have held it in and i just have to say riding the storm out (laughs) i want to break free and you are not alone
3: that's beautiful wow it's it's a third man phenomenon playlist
1: oh lordy well done i held that in for you
3: Before we wrap up, we wanted to uh, update you on some, on on kind of a cool thing. We are going to be doing a live show. Sort of. Sort of, kind of. Yeah. It's going to be on a looped network and we talked about doing a live show from our house before the end of the month but because we have been uh, in talks with them over the past uh, week or two we're probably looking at doing something mid-april
1: mid-april
3: yeah and this is going to be great because it takes looped takes it to a whole different level Uh, you can buy sweets if you've got friends from around the country Mm -hmm. that you want to watch the show with You can all be put in a virtual suite where you can video chat back and forth. There are virtual meeting greets. Um, It's really a very cool platform.
1: It's so cool, you guys, that while on a Zoom call with the people who run this organization, I swore at them. She said, holy fuck, this is cool. I feel badly about that now, but (laughs) I was excited. Well, you caught
3: the CEO by surprise. But we can do trivia, we can uh, do uh, questions and answers. I mean, there's so many things we can do on this platform. It's really neat. It's really cool. It's very cutting-edge stuff, and we'll give you more information the closer we get. We are really looking forward to this. And we're looking forward to seeing you next time.
1: Until then, keep flying that freak flag.
2: Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. The Box of On Facebook at Facebook.com slash Box of Oddities Podcast. On Twitter at Box of Oddities and Instagram at Box of Oddities Podcast. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.
0: Do you love history but hate
1: when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charles, a your the neighborhood
0: social scientist and reader of books as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course... Women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.